0: Hey everyone, Sabrina here and you're listening to Calm Conversations. In this podcast, I speak with clinical psychologist Dr. Perlene Ung about whether it's possible to live a meaningful life with a mental health condition, specifically Bipolar II disorder. In our chat, we explore the different stages of recovery, how various forms of treatment may look like, and how we may help ourselves through building support systems and practicing self-care. Personally, I found the chat really helpful as I got the chance to reflect on my own mental health journey and gain clarity along the way. So whether you have a mental health condition or whether you're supporting someone right now, we hope that there's something helpful here for you. Hi Perlene! Hi! Thanks for joining us today. I'm really, really looking forward to our conversation. I have a lot of questions for you and I'm hoping that you'll be able to shed some light on, you know, on the condition I live with, bipolar 2 disorder, mm. and hopefully give us all some hope that one can live well with this condition and perhaps even thrive. Mm. So before we get started, could you share a bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. So I'm Dr. Perlene. I'm a senior clinical
1: psychologist and the lead of Virea Psychological Services at Virea Community Services. I completed my doctorate studies in clinical psychology in the UK and I focus on providing psychological treatment for clients experiencing mood and anxiety
0: disorders and post-traumatic stress disorders as well. So that's great. You're the perfect person to speak to about this um, big question I have, right? (laughs) I try. (laughs) All right. So we're talking about bipolar disorder today. Mm. So I I would like to understand a bit more about bipolar 2 disorder. What does it look like and how does it present itself from person to person?
1: Sure. So um, bipolar 2 disorder is one of the Um, four basic types of bipolar disorder and in general bipolar disorder is a mental health condition that affects your mood Um, and many people kind of experience a swinging of mood from one extreme to the other so experiencing very low moods um, like depression to feeling uh, manic or episodes of mania, so feeling very high and overactive so particularly bipolar 2 disorder um, if someone was to be diagnosed with that they would experience um these two conditions. So at least one
0: hypermanic episode and at least one depressive episode. Mm, yes, um I'm definitely familiar with that, Pauline. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh you know, so when I was in my depressive state, I was unable to work. I was kind of um, just refusing to get out of bed. It was really, really mm-hmm. difficult. Uh, and at that point, I was reluctantly relying on my parents to take care of my bills and pay for mm-hmm. the professional help I needed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on the other side, right, when my mood was getting better um, and I weaned off the antidepressants that I was on, uh, I got ultra productive and super social to make up for all mm-hmm. that lost time, <laughs> you know, I that I wasted during during that depressive state. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I get what you mean when you were sharing your that definition, right? But mm-hmm. when I finally got my bipolar 2 disorder diagnosis, it really helped me make sense of the changing moods and behaviours I was like, experiencing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it felt impossible to imagine that I would ever be able to live a normal life or Mm. a so-called normal life again. You know, I was very worried about whether I would relapse or if my condition would would worsen. Mm -hmm. So I really wanted to find out from you whether Mm. this was a concern that's shared by the clients that you see.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, similar to yourself, a lot of my clients um, ask the same question, you know, can I recover? Can I lead a normal life? You know, can I get back to where I was before? Um, so, you know, they, they do have very similar thoughts as well.
0: And, um, what would trigger those thoughts for them?
1: I think a lot of times it's kind of being in the depressive episode where they feel a sense of hopelessness and helplessness. And that's what kind of living with depression does to you, right? Gives you that, that, mm-hmm. that sense of hopelessness. So I think a lot of it is kind of attributed to, to that depressive episode, um, and, and also, I guess, um, you know, I think um, there's a lot of stigma around, you know, mood disorders like bipolar. Um, a lot of people think that you can't recover from it or that the kind of the treatment efficacy is really, really low. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I have clients also kind of asking um, or sharing their personal experiences where they were shunned or rejected by potential partners, you know, when when they shared that they have, you know, um, bipolar or mood disorders. So I think all those kind of, um, yeah, give, make them think, right, that perhaps, you know, maybe they're not normal or maybe they can't lead a normal life like other people. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, for me at least, when I, I think back to my personal experience, I so if this was when I was 26, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I pretty much hit my hit rock bottom mm. and I kind of had to let go of all the aspirations I had of having a successful career, of finding a life partner, of growing a nest egg for the life I wanted to have, right? Mm. And all of these milestones or events are really, really key to, I guess, to someone who's in their 20s or even 30s, right? Mm. Um, and and having that kind of diagnosis or setback as it seemed um really made me feel like okay you know i i have to let go of everything and life will never i will i can never expect to have a normal life ever again right Mm. so how like how do you help your clients reframe their perspective towards their diagnosis Mm. i think
1: to begin with we have a conversation about what recovery is um Mm. And I think, you know, there's just actually two types of recovery, you know, how I see it, right? The first type is, you know, what we call symptomatic recovery, meaning, um, you know, you don't have any more symptoms or you have symptoms reduction. And the other type of recovery is kind of more about your personal recovery, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're able to manage your kind of mental health conditions, you're able to manage your bipolar too and continue to lead a meaningful life. Yeah, mm-hmm. so... I think a lot of times it just starts off by having a conversation, you know, what, what does recovery mean for you and, and what exactly is a normal life? Because I think, um, we all have different lives, and the normal life don't really quite exist, actually, Because right? we all <laughs> lead very different lives and walk very different journeys. So I think it starts with kind of asking your uh, or my clients, you know, uh, what what does recovery look like for them, and, and what are their goals, you know, and uh, what are their short term, medium long term goals, and how can we continue to achieve that uh, mm-hmm. while managing the symptoms of bipolar two
0: disorder. Mm, I think wow, okay, that was a really really good breakdown. Um, I really like that you you broke down the recovery process uh, into two parts right the mm-hmm. symptomatic recovery and the personal recovery. And um, maybe we can kind of tackle this this um, conversation from going uh, you know going into two different parts right? Mm-hmm. So with regards to symptomatic recovery um, mm-hmm. what does that process, look like and mm. how do you guide your clients through that recovery process?
1: So I think the first thing we have to do is determine if it is really bipolar 2 disorder or is it some mm. other kind of difficulties they're experiencing. So we would kind of typically do a kind of a psych- psychological assessment to kind of understand what their mental health needs Or are there any other comorbidities that they're experiencing in terms of other mental health conditions like maybe, you know, OCD or any Mm. anxiety disorders or anything like that? Um, So once we get a good understanding that, yes, it is, you know, bipolar 2 disorder that they are primarily kind of um, experiencing, then, you know, um, we might kind of then consider some treatment options for them. Mm-hmm. So most people who have bipolar two disorder do kind of go on to um, get some pharmacological um, treatment, uh, meaning medication, mm-hmm. um, and and then so we might refer them to a psychiatrist to to kind of get their medication, or we might also then um, you know recommend them to kind of um, attend psychological therapies like cognitive behavioural therapy, which has been proven to also be quite effective in supporting um, somebody with uh, bipolar 2 disorder. Mm. Mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think reflecting on my own journey, right, um, you're right in saying that what really helped was uh, treatment on two fronts, having that... that, um, well, on, on one hand, having that help from my therapist was really helpful to reframe my thoughts on a lot of critical uh, thoughts that were coming and kind of, mm. you know, not helping me get better. And on the other hand, I, I did seek help from my psychiatrist and I still do now, right? And I have been on mm. medication or mood stabilizers for the past few years, Um I also noticed that you mentioned comorbidities. Um, so, how does this um, work? You know, I, I have spoken to some friends who have mm. bipolar two disorder along with, um, you know, other other symptoms and other comorbidities. Uh, what is treatment like for them? Mm, that's a great question. So. Um
1: there might be comorbidities such as the prevalence of other mental conditions like, you know, some other types of med- um, anxiety disorders. Um, so what happens in treatment, um, at least for the psychological part of things, is that we focus on on treating one um, before the other. So we will look at what is mm. the primary uh, difficulty that they're experiencing. So is it bipolar disorder too or is it maybe OCD? Right. So, you know, um, there's one thing that we ask in, in, in therapy to, to ascertain that. And, you know, we ask the kind of the magic wand question, right? So if there's two kind of conditions that you're suffering from, um, if, you know, I if one day, you know, I wave my magic wand and, you know, your OCD kind of uh, recovers, would you still experience bipolar too? and then vice versa? Right. So A lot of the times the clients would be able to tell me, you know, actually, I think, you know, it's my bipolar 2 disorder that is, you know, maintaining my OCD. So that's where we then treat the bipolar 2 disorder first because, you know, we want to kind of um, focus on the primary cause and also the the root cause of the problem. And most of the time they might find that once the primary problem is kind of resolved or they can recover from it, actually um, the other
0: kind of disorders kind of go away. And when you mentioned the root cause, right, um, Mm -hmm. what do you mean exactly? So, yeah, I think we haven't really quite
1: found out, you know, Mm. um, what causes bipolar two disorders and also what causes a lot of other types of mental health disorders, right? Um, Mm. But I think when I talk about root cause, um, I'm talking about the factors that are kind of maintaining the problem, right? So, if it's, you know, uh, depression or having depressive episodes, then, Mm. you know, is the root cause having. Very kind of negative, critical, automatic thoughts, mm. um, and or kind of having behaviors that are unhelpful or you know maladaptive, such as avoiding people or you know not not being able to engage in things that you used to enjoy, um, mm-hmm. you know. So so if those are the things that's causing you to have your depressive kind of um, episodes, then that would kind of be be what we'd be targeting in in the in
0: therapy mm yeah I, I really like that you brought that up because um, you know, one thing I've noticed is that a lot of the symptoms that we see or that we experience, right it's it's usually a result of these root causes and the causes um, as I've read and I've spoken with uh, quite a few people about mm. um, tend to relate back to various, say, childhood experiences or traumatic events that may have happened to us, right? Yeah. And if we're not able to to work through it or, um, I guess, have a better relationship with what has happened in the past, then it seems that these symptoms will still persist um, even though treatment or even even though we, we may be able to seek that medical treatment along the way to to help us out. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I
1: think I definitely agree. I think, again, no one really knows exactly what causes bipolar. But lots of research have shown or they have suggested a combination of different factors, including, um, you know, environmental, social and childhood experiences like experiencing adverse childhood events, trauma, mm-hmm. you know, undergoing stressful periods in your life, like, um, you know, maybe experiencing breakup in your relationship or um, experiencing poverty, um, traumatic loss, um. So these are things that that have been tied in Mm -hmm. with kind of um, why some people may have bipolar. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
0: and I think that can really be um, not fixed, right? But it can really... Mm -hmm. I I feel that therapy can really, really help with processing these things. Yeah, definitely. And,
1: you know, because I practice with a, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy model, and what we believe Mm -hmm. is that um, our childhood... Experiences, um, especially the adverse ones, actually cause us to develop very kind of negative core beliefs about ourselves, or you know, schemas about ourselves, and then that might lead to you know having quite um, dysfunctional assumptions of um, ourselves, or the world, or other people, which then lead to you know having negative automatic thoughts and engaging in you know maladaptive behaviors that would then continue to maintain you know um, the negative core beliefs that we have about ourselves so it's it's kind of like a cycle.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So when you talk about kind of um you know um working with somebody with with depression um or, or bipolar especially kind of um with the depressive episodes then you know um psychological therapy can come in by kind of re-looking at some of your core beliefs can we change them to be healthier or more adaptive core beliefs mm-hmm. um or or can we kind of catch the negative thoughts and kind of change them um, also change our behaviors.
0: Mm. Could you share uh, an example of a client story with us? So I mean, I can't really share the name <laughs> or anything
1: because it's confidential. Um, but I think um, you know some some clients that I've seen with bipolar. Um, you know, they they actually get kind of stuck in their depressive episodes, and you know when when they are feeling very low in their mood. Um, you know, they tend to kind of have very auto- negative automatic thoughts about themselves, you know, oh, I can't do this or, you know, I, I'm, I'm a failure, you know, I'm not good enough, right? And, and when we tie it back to their experiences, it's usually because, you know, they might have, um, you know, quite um, adverse childhood experiences or they actually experience maybe some form of, you know, um, bullying, or you know, they remember kind of you know being neglected and stuff like that, which then caused them to develop core beliefs about themselves. Um, you know, that's quite negative. So you know, they might believe mm-hmm. that you know, yeah, nobody loves me, or you know, I am unlovable. Um, mm-hmm. And 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 when they get triggered by a situation, you know, they these things come up, right? And mm-hmm. and and then that caused them to kind of spiral and then experience all the kind of depressive kind of um, symptoms.
0: Mm. So, you know, just to kind of continue the conversation on treatment, right? Um, so we've talked about therapy. I would like to, de- to to explore the idea of medication a bit more. So personally, one of the biggest concerns I have is, uh, is medication. You know, can I ever mm-hmm. get off medication? Do I have to be on my mood stabilizers for for life? Sure.
1: I do not have to say that, you know, that's not my area of expertise because I'm not a psychiatrist. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm, a, I'm a clinical psychologist. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, just, just kind of, kind of um, from experience of what my clients have experienced, mm. um, you know, uh, medications um, can also come in terms of short-term and long-term medications. And some of them do eventually go off medication, but that's with, you know planning, concise planning um, mm-hmm. and collaborative planning with their psychiatrists as well and even when they do go off medication then also it's about kind of thinking about what are the care treatment or, or care plans they can continue mm-hmm. um, when they go off medication so is it talking therapy or is it kind of gaining support from their families um, mm-hmm. and friends Right, so I think um, you know it's it's quite careful planning together with their psychiatrist when they
0: do go off um, medication. Yeah, I can imagine so, and you know, I yeah, I, I I have seen that I've been feeling better in the past couple of years since mm. uh, you know since uh, I I guess five years ago when I was arrested for attempted suicide, mm. um, and I my psychiatrist has actually floated the idea of. Trying to reduce my medication and with the mm. hope to eventually get off it, but mm. I'm so afraid of uh, you know if of even trying because I don't want to run the risk of relapsing again. Yeah, and I I do wonder whether whether it's just me or whether it's yeah I I don't know whether this concept of self-stigmatization is something that mm. comes up for your clients, but. I've recognized that with this diagnosis that I have as well as the mm-hmm. medication I'm on, it really feels or I, I really feel that I need to be super, super careful about the risks I expose myself to and any stresses that I take, right? Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on this? Self-stigmatization?
1: Yeah, I think you know, that's that's really quite common. Um when, you know, some some of my clients actually kind of say that, hey, you know, I don't think I can do this because of my mental health condition or, you know, I have mm. kind of uh, rejected um, opportunities or promotion, um, you know, or depriving themselves from, you know, lots of other opportunities, um, you know, because they believe that, you know, they, they're not normal or they can't recover. Um, and sometimes, you know, the stigma comes a lot more from themselves than from their peers or, you know, from, from their bosses.
0: Mm. I mean, there's a lot of different levels of stigma here, right, <laughs> that we're kind of unpacking. Mm. So on the societal level, bipolar disorder itself is not really widely understood. Mm. Um you know, for myself, I've found it really, really difficult to talk, to talk about bipolar disorder with my boss and with Mm. potential people I was dating. Right. Yeah. So how, how do you guide people along this journey to overcome this self stigmatization?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really quick question. And I think kind of going back to kind of what we do in therapy, um, Remember when I mentioned that, um, you know, sometimes when we experience things in our lives, we develop certain core beliefs about ourselves, Mm. right? And what we kind of do is then we look at at all these thoughts and all these beliefs and see whether, you know, they make sense or are there a more objective way of kind of looking at ourselves uh, or Mm. kind of perceiving the situation, Right. So sometimes it's about kind of getting them to just try things, you know, kind of doing behavior experiments just to test out their predictions to see if it's true or not, right? And and most often they actually realize that, hey, that's actually just a prediction that's kind mm-hmm. of uh, developed because of the kind of the critical thoughts I have about myself or the core mm-hmm. beliefs I have about mm-hmm. myself, but actually it's not quite true, right? So the more they try it out, the more they test their predictions, they more the more mm-hmm. they realize that, it doesn't really quite happen. Then they would slowly kind of develop maybe a more objective way of looking at situations and then they would slowly kind of change their perception and kind of slowly start giving themselves a
0: chance. Mm, okay, yeah. I mean, I I, I see what, where you're coming from and this kind of brings to mind some um, hypotheses I was testing, right, in my recovery mm-hmm. journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is related to dating. So... Mm. Yeah, it was, it was really, really hard for me to kind of bring up this topic, right? Because I was like so afraid um, of, of sharing that I have this condition to take care of, right? Mm-hmm. And there was actually one time where I... There was one time I decided not to share with the person I was dating. So this mm-hmm. was um, pretty fresh uh, when I... Pretty fresh from my diagnosis. And after... So when I started dating this person, I was Mm. hypomanic. So Mm. I was like the life of the party. I wasn't sleeping very much. I was very fun. Mm. (laughs) Um, And then uh, about three months after that, I kind of went into a depressive episode. And then he pretty much freaked out. He said, Sabrina, I I don't know who you are and I can't handle you like this. This is not the person I, I thought you were. Right? And... It was super hurtful and that kind of made me clam up and honestly i i actually didn't share about uh, my diagnosis at that point um and only in the past two and a half years i decided that i decided that okay you know what i'm just gonna be super upfront about it and just share with uh, whoever i'm dating or even new friends right like okay so I have bipolar disorder. This is what it is, and um, you know, feel free to ask questions and feel free to walk away if you're uncomfortable with it. Um, it was very liberating for me, but at the same time, it's it was super super scary <laughs> to share yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, and I get. I guess it's been helpful because you know, mm. on one hand, it's it means that I don't have to carry the burden yep. of the secret, mm. right? Mm. Um, so I don't have to keep that a secret. And at the same time, it's also allowed me to pretty much let go of any expectations mm. from mm. the relationship, right? Just putting myself up there.
1: Yeah, that's lovely. And, and you know, I'm, I'm really curious, you know, how, how do you get from not wanting to share to mm-hmm. kind of getting the courage to kind of just share it? And, you know, it's almost like take your it, you, know, oh. I'm, I'm you know, I have this.
0: Hmm. Wow. Um I don't know actually. I I think I just so I think I was rereading this uh this article by Mark Manson, you know, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a mm-hmm. F. Yep. <laughs> a star. I think we get we get um yeah, uh, we, we get censored here. So <laughs> I can't say Um and I realized, yeah, I think just by giving less Fs, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um there's nothing to lose really. And the the worst the worst case scenario is that the person walks away and says no I can't handle this and um, that's also actually the best case scenario because you don't have to deal with you don't have mm. to deal with their you know their worries or insecurities um, as mm. of being your partner later down the road if um, if say an episode comes up so. So far, it's working, and uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah, and I think you know that
1: that change. Um, very often, I do see it in my clients as well, right? Mm-hmm. When when they go through therapy, because I think therapy gives them a chance to really process, you know, what they've been experiencing, process the losses that they've been experiencing, mm-hmm. but also process that you know they have they have come through quite a lot. And, you know, when they're on their journey of recovery, you know, there's so much strength that they have. And mm-hmm. that gives them a whole new kind of um, sense of confidence in themselves. And, and kind of then mm-hmm. it kind of reduces the self-stigmatization that, that they have, you know,
0: towards themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, you know, I, I really wanted to kind of dive deeper since we are on this topic of self-stigmatization and also mm-hmm. this... I think we've moved into the territory of personal recovery, right? Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the idea of personal recovery earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to understand a bit more about how you would approach this with your client, right? Um, mm-hmm. I understand that it looks different from, for everybody. Everyone's recovery will look different, uh, will be unique. Um, mm-hmm. so, so yeah, how, how do you take your client through uh, this journey? Mm,
1: I think, you know, firstly, um, when I'm working with my client, um, what we do is that we, we kind of focus on, you know, um, looking at things that maintain, you know, the episodes of, you know, low mood, for example, mm-hmm. and then You know, once we kind of pick at it, so for example, once we kind of start kind of changing our behaviors or kind of start, you know, um, changing our our thoughts about the negative thoughts about ourselves and kind of changing the beliefs that we have about ourselves to be more adaptive, to be healthier, to be, you know, um, yeah, to be things that actually are more positive about themselves you know, when they start seeing themselves for who they really are and start seeing their strength, actually, you know, they are already on the road of recovery because they're no longer kind of held back by negative thoughts about themselves or predictions about the world, you know, and they they kind of gain a bit more courage to do things that they kind of Mm -hmm. used to not want to do. Right, for example, you know, kind of um, maybe going back to work or you know uh, starting to kind of meet up with friends again, uh, making kind of everyday changes in their lives. And mm-hmm. you know, with the work that we do, we always say that um, changes happen in, in baby steps, right? Mm-hmm. It's yep. it's about the it's about the little differences that you make each day, rather than that one big change that you do. So I think the the fact that you know they're already here for therapy and they're making that first step to kind of recover, um that is already a great sign that they are on their journey of recovery and and you know session by session, day by day, we kind of just encourage them to kind of make behavioral changes or cognitive changes, um, mm-hmm. you know, so that it doesn't kind of hold them back anymore. Um yeah, and, and, and kind of, you know, um I guess then also we kind of support them in also kind of um Achieving some goals that they have set for themselves, like short-term goals, medium-term goals, and like long-term goals, and kind of once they mm-hmm. kind of um, you know feel that hey they they could actually achieve things, they could do things, and you know the bipolar disorder is not holding them back anymore. You know actually that that is really quite um, you know important and significant for their own personal recovery because they realize mm-hmm. that you know um, they can still continue to live meaningful life um, despite experiencing all of those things.
0: So, so I guess what I'm hearing from what you've shared is, it's is that it's really about rebuilding one's confidence uh, in the various aspects of their lives, and mm. to, I guess, to varying extents as well, right? Um, mm. Once you take one baby step, you can maybe take the next two steps, and then you can take the yeah. take the next five steps, right? Yeah. And when you kind of look back, you're like, oh wow, that's I've I've taken all those steps, and I'm. Halfway or even at the top of the stairs now, and that's when, that's where the confidence and and uh, courage comes up. I want to dig deeper into the idea of, you know, different stages of recovery, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess a couple of questions here that are coming up for me. Um, one, can someone ever be fully recovered? Or is someone always in recovery once they've been diagnosed with bipolar disorder? What's your view on this? I think that's a great question.
1: And, you know, tons of research have actually shown that you can recover from bipolar disorder and it's a highly treatable condition, right? So I've seen studies where recovery rates are as high as 70 to 85%. And, you know, again, kind of it goes back to the idea of recovery and and what it means for, for different people. But certainly, you know, um, when when you talk about um, even symptomatic kind of reduction or or kind of functional recovery you know or being able to lead a meaningful life you know the the kind of rate of recovery is really quite high for people experiencing bipolar disorder and um, i think based on research they also found that a combination treatment um, meaning uh, combining psychotherapy with medication is especially effective so um, maybe just to cite a study you know, that I'm familiar with, um, you know, they actually kind of compared, um, you know, people using uh, CBT with medication um, as to those with medication, who's only using medication alone. And for those who actually use CBT plus medication, there was a 60% reduction in relapse. Mm. And um, another study, when they found that, you know, um, over a nine-month period, um, patients who actually kind of... Um, attended family-focused treatment with medication actually um, experienced a kind of 11% relapse as compared to medication alone, which was 61%. So I guess it shows that actually recovery is possible. Uh, it's very possible. Um, but also, you know, um, there are things that you can do to actually increase the, the rate of, of recovery and reduce the rate of, of relapse.
0: Mm-hmm. So... I wanted to explore the other factors beyond therapy and medication that actually helps with someone's recovery. Because I, I, I guess from my own experience, I've seen that a lot of self-management actually goes a long way. And two of the things that I paid attention to, especially at the start, was to stay away from alcohol and to, to make sure I sleep enough. So how mm. does this actually work, um, you know, maybe for scientifically or from a therapy perspective? Like, How does this actually help with um, maintaining that, uh, I guess, relatively stable state when you're trying to recover?
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, in terms of triggers for hypomania and mania, I think... Um, Some clients actually shared that, you know, being in highly stressful situations or, you know, changes in their sleep patterns, uh, having lack of sleep, like insomnia, or using kind of recreational drugs or alcohol actually causes them to um, experience hypomania or, you know, even um, depressive episodes, Mm -hmm. right? And kind of um, experiencing transitional changes in your life, um, like kind of um, maybe going through a relationship breakup or a divorce um, can also cause, you know, um, triggers for hypomania or, or low mood. Um, so I think, you know, sleep is really important, like what you shared. And I think when you don't sleep, actually, that causes some, you know, that, that causes you to feel irritable or, you know, that might cause you to kind of lose concentration or it might affect some chemical reaction in your brain as well, which may then kind of... Um, you know, cause you to experience low mood um, or, or hypomania mm-hmm. as well, you know, because that's a significant trigger for, for those things. So um, definitely, I think one way to kind of, you know, um, to ensure that you're recovering well is to kind of pay attention to your sleep, to sleep well, to eat well, to lead a healthy lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, um, I think also, um, you know, clients have reported that um, besides leading a healthy lifestyle, um, actually having very supportive relationships mm-hmm. like friends and family who so actually know about their conditions and can support them through it, um, mm-hmm. also also help them with their recovery. And, um, you know, some even share that, um, you know, just kind of taking care of their self, like, you know, self-care, you know, or speaking about, you know, s- bipolar to their friends, you know, just sharing about mm-hmm. their, their recovery journey. Um, you know, give them a sense of empowerment and helps them in their recovery journey?
0: Mm. Oh, yeah, I think building support systems is a, a really, really key one. So for me, um, what's really helped me is that uh, I actually, <laughs> I created a list uh, on Trello, this app. Mm. And I have a list of all the different things that help me um, manage my bipolar 2 disorder right and one Mm. of the lists I have is a list of people that I can turn to um, Mm. if I need to reach out for support and that includes a few family members a few trusted friends Um, Mm. and I guess what I found right was that Mm -hmm. not every friend um, has the empathy to hold space for someone who is going through a mental health condition I, mean, I I would say not yet, right? So, you know, is there any advice that you actually share with your clients when they are looking to get support from the people around them? Yeah,
1: I think like what you did, you know, it's really to identify who they can be vulnerable with and who would be there for them. I think we talk about friends and families i think they all go through their own individual journeys as well we're not quite sure you know what are some difficulties they may be experiencing so certainly you know not everybody would be able to kind of support us Mm -hmm. right um so i think it's really being able to identify that person who is also kind of um, able to support you and is willing to support you as well and kind of then kind of Almost kind of teaching them how to support you because like what you mentioned earlier on like we all experience bipolar quite differently you know, right we have different presentations mm-hmm. right we have different needs so i think your friends and families um it might be helpful to also teach them how to support you because they may not have mm-hmm. all the answers and most of the time you know our friends and families are not trained professionals mm-hmm. right so they don't really know what to say or you know how, how to listen right so um i guess it's really guiding them and working together right and Mm -hmm. and and do have caregivers sometimes who kind of um you know take the initiative to actually talk to us and ask how can i support you know my daughter or you know my friend or my girlfriend better Mm -hmm. right And, and work together with them so you know we we kind of um as therapists you know we kind of um, work together with them and, and, and help them understand the condition better mm-hmm. and also help them understand you know their loved one better and almost kind of treating them like a co-therapist in some sense. Um, you know, so so um yeah. So 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 they would know kind of how to kind of um support their loved one um when hmm. when when they are in a depressed episode or when they are in a hypomanic episode. So you mentioned
0: co-therapist. What kind of yeah, what kind of skills do you share with the caregivers mm. of people with bipolar mm. too?
1: Yeah, I think firstly, it's helping them, you know, be aware of, you know, the signs and symptoms, mm. right, that their loved one is experiencing when they have a hypomanic or depressive episode, right? So how to watch out for them and then, you know, what would help them? So, for example, you know, if, if, if a client of mine has, you know, is in a depressive episode and is really feeling really lethargic and doesn't really want to kind of get out of bed, then, you know, their plan with their loved one might be, you know, to get the loved one to kind of uh, slowly, kind of gently ask them to kind of bait of bed or kind of engage in meaningful, interesting activities with them. Mm -hmm. right just kind of making that that initiative because we know that you know when we when we feel depressed we actually really don't have any mood to do anything and we might not kind of initiate you know all of these activities with our loved ones Mm -hmm. right um so 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 that's one thing and also. teaching them or guiding them you know how to listen better so a lot of our clients come in and they say oh you know my loved ones doesn't really know how to listen to me they will just tell me uh, to buck up or you know just step out of it or you know everything will be okay you know at least you know just kind of you know saying things like oh you know uh, at least you're you're kind of still coping, you're still functioning. And some of my clients actually say that, you know, that's not really helpful mm-hmm. um, because it can be quite patronizing or actually... Oh, for is, sure. Yeah, right. And then that makes them feel even worse. Mm-hmm. So it's also guiding, you know, the loved ones as to how to communicate better with with, with their loved ones um, and also kind of what, what to say and, and what not to say.
0: Mm, that's right. I think that's a really, really good one. And I, I have noticed in the past that I get, Easily triggered if uh, the wrong thing is said at the wrong time for me. Because um, mm. I think when, when you're depressed or even when you're hypermanic, you're kind of extra sensitive <laughs> during that time. Mm. Uh, so, for instance, my mom was actually my caregiver for a while, and I could tell she was really walking on eggshells when she was, uh, yeah. I guess, taking care of me. Yeah. And I guess sometimes it's also kind of
1: allowing your caregiver that permission to ask you, you know, what can I do mm. for you to make you feel better?
0: Mm. Yeah, it's really a two-way street and I really like that you, you brought up the, the point of uh, how the person with the condition should also help their caregivers and the people around them uh, support them better, right? Because mm, uh, yeah. for me, when I first was diagnosed, I... I really felt like a victim, you know, I was like, Mm -hmm. why me? Life sucks. Everyone should just try to help me because I am suffering, (laughs) you know. Um, (laughs) But then over the years, I realized that, okay, hang on, wait a minute. No one actually understands what I'm going through. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And only I understand myself. And yeah, and with this understanding, I know what I need and I know what I want. And yeah. the only thing I can do is to kind of create my own manual in a way to mm. tell people, okay, if I'm being a complete jerk, I'm probably mm-hmm. hypomanic and you can tell me off. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. 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 That kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's a really, really good point that that we need to kind of try harder Mm. to help others help us us, right yeah okay so Praline I really wanted to find out before we wrap up right you've had the privilege to work with a lot of clients and help see them through their mental health conditions or navigate through their conditions I I wonder whether any of your clients have come away from their journey um, with a better relationship towards their mental health condition or specifically Mm. for bipolar disorder what do you think
1: yeah, I think definitely, you know, I've got lots of clients who, you know, at the end of therapy, you know, they really say that, you know, um, you know, this, this is really a, a kind of empowering journey that they've been through. And a lot of them kind of, kind of, kind of give themselves a new label, you know, instead of someone with a mental health condition or, you know, a person with a mental health condition or mental illness or disorder, you know, they call themselves survivors. Right. that's quite a common one amongst um, a lot of my clients you know when they say you know hey I, you know I've lived through this I'm in better control of my emotions and you know I'm a survivor mm.
0: right. so
1: then that's they kind amazing. of turn their learnings yeah and they kind of turn their learnings you know what they kind of learn about themselves you know about their mental conditions and and not only they that they kind of turn it into, you know, strengths or or positive learning experiences, but they also then give back to other people. So then they start Mm -hmm. kind of volunteering, you know, to run kind of support groups or, you know, volunteering to share their stories to inspire other people and to give other people hope. That's
0: really, really good, Perlene. I think you just told my story as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, through through the whole process of um, going through, this condition or this journey it's uh you know obviously it really really sucked at the start you know um, mm. but as I learned to live with it and to find my footing again while mm. still taking care of myself and this condition that I have uh I've really gained a lot more courage um, and confidence in my own abilities in um and and I've changed my perspective to what's the idea of having a mental health condition. It's not all, it's not as bad as it seemed, right? Mm. And I think the biggest thing for me is that it's really allowed me to to develop a much deeper empathy towards anyone else who is suffering. Um, and this this really extends to everything beyond mental health as well, right? Mm. So I think that's, yeah, I wouldn't recommend this journey to anyone. It's like, hey, guys, get a mental health condition, please don't. But, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think there are things to to take away and grow, and grow from. Definitely. I think, you know, what I've learned from
1: my clients is that it's not all like doom and gloom when you have a mental health mm-hmm. condition, right? But if you kind of take the first step to recovery and kind of, you know, um, get the necessary support that you need, actually, you can come out a lot more stronger, than
0: than you think. Definitely. Well, thank you, Praline, for your time today. And, you know, before we wrap up, I would like to ask one more question. Mm. And the question is, how do you find calm for yourself? I think that's a big question. I think personally for myself,
1: you know, I find calm by engaging in a lot of self-care activities, uh, making sure that, you know, I pamper myself every so often. Um, but I also find calm in my husband so I do confide Mm -hmm. in him like hey I'm feeling really stressed today or you know I'm really feeling really anxious and he helps me feel better by just kind of being there and you know just having someone to talk to Mm -hmm. and also of course you know I practice mindfulness as well um yeah so that helps me feel calm amazing
0: thank you so much Praline for sharing today
1: welcome thanks for having me
0: on Thank you for listening to Calm Conversations. If you liked today's conversation, make sure to follow this podcast. We have a lot more interesting conversations lined up, dealing with many different aspects of mental health from an Asian cultural lens. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, Telegram, or Facebook to find out when we're releasing our next podcast episode or hosting our next talk. You can look us up as Calm Collective Asia or go to our website www.comcollective.asia. This podcast is supported by the National Youth Council, the Youth Action Challenge, and Youth Collab. Also, a huge thank you to Snakeweed Studios who are helping us record and produce this podcast. See you next time. Until then, stay calm.